your first job, I remember mine, uh, at least my first real job, I suppose. Uh, they used to have things called service stations where you went in, you pulled in, somebody else pumped your gas and wiped your window off. You're old enough to remember all of that and maybe checked your oil. And I got a job when I was 15. Uh, he wasn't supposed to hire me, but he did you know, right for my 16th birthday and uh, started working at a service station. <clears throat> and I thought I was a pretty good employee. And it wasn't but about a week or so that he decided, my boss decided that he would, uh, he would sort of leave me for the afternoon in charge of everything. Uh, wasn't very busy on a Saturday afternoon, so he said, Dave, you just stay here and take care of the place yourself. And I wondered how smart of an idea that was when he said that, but I was so happy to be, I suppose, to have that trust put in me. I said, sure, I'll do that. Uh, and so he showed me around the different things I needed to do while I was there, and he left. Um, and went through the shift, and that evening somebody came back up because it was one of these places that stayed open all night. Somebody else came back in and took my shift over, and I was pretty... I was pretty um, happy about how things went. I didn't burn the building down, and there were, I didn't get robbed or anything like that. Everything went pretty well, so I thought, I'm pretty good. And the next morning, uh, I came in, and uh, he said, David, come here and talk to you about some things. And he had this, it was back when people were just starting to use credit cards. Now you just put it in a machine. And back then, they had this, you probably, maybe some of you remember this thing that you kind of went with this, you put a card in, it had a carbon thing on it, and you went like that, and it put the person's name pressed on, onto a piece of paper, and then you gave them a little bit as a receipt. And I had never used one of those before until I started working there. But he had a whole stack of those things, of all the gas that I had sold all that day. And what I had forgotten to do was to move the little numbers in the bottom that put the actual transaction amount in the bottom of the receipts. So he says, you know how much money I got all that? He says, nothing. Because the credit card company would not accept them unless they were actually, the numbers were actually put in it. So every gallon of gas that people put on a credit card, maybe you were there that day, you got it for free. You got it for free because I didn't do my job very well. And how I knew that is because um, at the end of the thing, I thought I was feeling pretty good until my boss called me in and said, uh, no, that's not the way you do that. It should have been this way. And so there's this aspect of when we approach our task or job, that there's someone that we are accountable to, someone who makes known to us, you see, how well we've done. Uh, and we like that. We like the idea of rating how a person does their job, to evaluate how a person works. In fact, it's almost essential in, in, in the economy. And so we have job ratings for presidents, uh, and we have employee of the month at Burger King. And when you start and you do your job, maybe somebody comes along and says, you've done a good job or maybe you haven't done a very good job. But one takes on a job with the idea that they will be held accountable and that there are things that are required. And you want to make the one whom you're accountable to, you see, pleased with what you do. And you want to be pleased of what the job that you do and how you accomplish that when you... At least we hope that individuals do when they take on that task. The Apostle Paul wanted his young protege, Timothy, to take pride in his work, so to speak. He wanted Timothy to take on the job of being an evangelist with an attitude of being approved in what he did, of doing it the right way, of accomplishing the purposes and the task that were before him and bearing fruit. Well, what did Timothy need to know to accomplish this work? What did he need to... Uh, what did, Paul the Apostle needed to tell young Timothy so that he would be able to do what he needed to do. 
2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 is the passage that we were assigned to, uh, our theme passage for the month of September, and it's still September, right? Uh, for the month of September that we were going to deal with and that we're going to look at this morning, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, the apostle tells Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now we've mentioned as we've gone through the text of First and Second Timothy uh, that these epistles are focused on the work of an evangelist. That Paul is discussing with Timothy uh, and presenting to him information as to how he can do his work. Uh, and Paul is directing Timothy on several elements of his task. The aspect of his personal life uh, to the aspect of how he would uh, as well deal with the word of God and even deal with false teachers and other individuals. But there are many times, I think, though this there is a specific focus and theme of these letters as we, as we study them. There are many times when the words are applicable to all of us, both you and I, to all Christians, because they uh, as well touch upon things that we are responsible for doing and uh, principles that you and I uh, are responsible for. Paul admonishes Timothy that he needs to be a worker who's not ashamed of his work, rightly dividing the word of truth. What does that mean? To not be ashamed by rightly dividing the word of truth. How does that apply to us? Well, I want to take a couple of minutes this morning and take a look at this particular passage and uh, come to some of those conclusions maybe that can help us. As, w- as always, when we study a passage of Scripture, it's important for us to view the context uh, of what's being said here. We notice that the call not to be ashamed of what God had given Timothy to do uh, was focused on the word of God and the importance of recognizing the singular nature of the revelation of God. Paul mentions not being ashamed four times in this context, which I think as well helps us to understand uh, how what he says to Timothy in chapter chapter 2, verse 15, is really the product of what he's already said about himself and about uh, about an individual's relationship to God as well. Uh, In 2 Timothy 2, if we go back to the very first of the chapter, 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, the first of the book, Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. He starts out the letter by saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed of what God has said and don't be ashamed of me. And then verse 12, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I I have suffered many things, but I myself, I'm not ashamed of what has happened to me and what I'm doing. And then he mentions in chapter 1, verse 16, Onesiphorus, who we studied particularly not too long ago, that... Onesimus is one of those individuals who was not ashamed of the fact that I was in prison. He was not ashamed of my trial, and my chains and my trials. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, he gets around to Timothy. And he says, you must be, or you are to be a worker who does not need to be ashamed. So the idea of living up to the task, so to speak, of doing what God wants us to do without being ashamed, either before others or as we're going to look at it, before God, It's thematic to what Paul writes to Timothy and ultimately what we find here in this second epistle, at least the first part of it. Well, how would Timothy accomplish this? To be a worker that's not ashamed, to do the task that God had given him to do. Well, if we back up a little bit, we recognize that in the previous verse, he he tells Timothy to remind other Christians of these things. He said several things that individuals needed to be cognizant of. The fact that Jesus Christ had died and risen from the dead and justified sinners. And so he says, remind other Christians of these things. These previous exhortations, I believe, which is what these things refers to, focus on the importance of the message that had originally been given. What Paul had told Timothy from the beginning, things that Timothy knew, even from the study of the Old Testament Scriptures. 
And so I believe what he's telling Timothy in this context is that the confidence he can have of being an evangelist comes through a commitment to what God has already revealed. I think we be careful not to overlook that because there are a lot of people who call themselves evangelists and preachers and teachers today in religion who make very little connection to what's revealed in Scripture. In fact, they spend very little time there. It doesn't motivate them much about what they do and it's not the focus of what they teach. But what Paul told Timothy was just the opposite of that. That you need to not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, we mentioned in verse 8. In verse 1, verse 13, he says, hold fast the pattern of sound words. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he tells Timothy, the things which you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to other individuals who can be able to teach. He tells Timothy to endure hardship as a good as an evangelist of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 5, in the illustration of athletics, he says, whatever you do, you've got to compete according to the rules. So what Paul's telling Timothy is that if you're going to not be ashamed of the work that you're going to do, then you need to be attached to the Word of God and have a real commitment to the message that's already been revealed. And then also he says, in the last part of verse 14, he says there, do not strive about words to no profit. He says you charge them you see, who you're going to remind these things of, those whom you teach, to not spend their time wrangling about things that don't matter. And I think that's probably what's involved here. And that's that's a matter of discernment, isn't it? It's a task that we place before us that sometimes is challenging because teaching involves words, and words are important in teaching. In fact, we're going to look at some words today that I believe you and I need to understand their meaning. We'll, we'll, we'll you see, go in the wrong direction if we don't understand the meaning of individual words. And the Scriptures themselves are verbally inspired, meaning that God chose the very words to be used in the original language to present to us His thoughts and to present to us, you see, what He would have us to understand. So words are very important. They are essential. But we cannot strive about words to no profit. The thought here is not, is not to be contentious or raggle about empty and trifling matters that have nothing to do with what you see the Scriptures are teaching us. And Paul said that elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 4, and chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. He says several times to the young evangelist, be careful you don't get caught up this contentious, raggling, debating type thing and fail to recognize the importance of what needs to be taught. What he says is that when you do that, souls are subverted, I think one translation says. A word that means to be overturned or capsized. And that's dangerous stuff, isn't it? You know, the, the idea that, uh, that, you would be, that, that you would flip over. You know, I have a little 13-foot fiberglass boat sometimes that I go fishing in. Um, and my boat's different than other, maybe boats that other people have. You don't stand up in it very much. And if you do, you don't walk around. You kind of sit in one place. Why? Because if you get up and start moving around and, fa- and failing to pay attention to what's going on, the whole thing's going to flip over. Because it's a little boat. And the idea here is you have to be careful and focused on what you're doing or things can happen that you never expect. And sometimes that happens in teaching the Word of God and preaching and the idea, of, you see, of doing the work even of an evangelist or teaching within a congregation is that we're not paying very close attention to whether or not we're actually focused on what God would have us to do and teaching the things that are actually in the Scriptures and souls then are capsized as a result of that. So what is Paul telling? What is the true command in this verse? He starts out by telling Timothy to be diligent. 
You might be more familiar with the King James rendering here, or the the King James renders this verse, study to sow yourself approved. And the King James use of the word study, I believe, is not an accurate conveyance of the original meaning of the word. That doesn't mean we shouldn't study the Scriptures. and That doesn't mean the study is not important. We're going to talk about that even in the context of this lesson. There are other passages that certainly call us to meditate on the Scriptures and to spend time there and understand what the will of the Lord is. But I would suggest to you that's not the most precise thought here. That the word here does not mean to study in terms of to book learn. The original word is the word spudazzo, which means to, to use speed to make effort to be prompt or earnest, it means to endeavor or labor or engage in persistent zeal. It means to do something by putting effort into it. To be diligent then is an accurate translation of this original word. And that's where, that's where Timothy, Paul starts here with Timothy. Is that you have to have a desire to put effort into what you're going to do if you're going to be a workman that's not ashamed. And then we recognize that there, that requirement is something that applies to all of us, not just the evangelist. In fact, Paul incorporates the noun form of this word in Romans chapter 12 and verse 11 in what ultimately is a negative command. Fascinating to me sometimes how things can be said in the Scriptures positively and negatively and we're able to see more comprehensively what's being said by looking at both. In Romans chapter 12 verse 11, Paul tells Christians, do not lag in diligence, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Not lagging in diligence. Now those two things you see are very opposites of one another. To lag means not to be diligent. To be diligent means not to lag. And to lag the aspect here of falling behind. Or we might look at it from the standpoint of the aspect of being lazy. Do not be lazy and indolent without any energy or enthusiasm. But rather be diligent, be earnest in what you do. So Paul sets in contrast two opposite words, lazy and zeal, and presents to us the perspective here, the same perspective from which Paul is approaching Timothy in the task that he has to do. That whatever follows has to be done with earnestness. The writer of Hebrews warns against an attitude of laziness in Hebrews chapter 6. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name, the writer says, that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience, you see, inherit the promises. What the Hebrew writer says is that you're doing a work and God recognizes and sees the work that you do. Be careful that you don't become sluggish in that work, that you continue to be earnest in what you do. And you know what sluggish is, don't you? You've experienced that. You know, uh, I think about, when I think of that word, I think about sometimes my car. Uh, it gets to where it doesn't go where it ought to go. And when do you notice that? You know, just to tell you, you maybe don't notice it when you're kind of cruising down the road, but then you got to get on the highway and put the, you know, put the, the gas down, and you, as soon as you pump on the gas, it kind of, uh, like, going to go backwards. And that's what the aspect here, I think, of this particular word means. It means, you see, that a person has to keep up the energy that's involved in the task that's before him. If we start to make excuses, if we start to hold back and rationalize the effort that God would want us to do, you see, then we fail to be diligent. Jeremiah chapter 48 verse 10. Jeremiah says there's a curse on him who is lax in doing the Lord's work. That ultimately it leads to bad things. There is no good end to individuals that become at ease uh, and relaxed in doing what God would have them to do. 
Being diligent then I think involves two perspectives here, or at least two elements. One is it means to be zealous, to actually engage in the work and to have an enthusiastic attitude towards the things that we do. And at the same time, it means to be careful or particular about what we do. A person is diligent, a person who cares about how it turns out. And that's not always together in the same person. I I know some folks who very well are A-type personalities to get things done. If you give them a job, it'll be done uh, immediately without delay. But the finished product might not be what you want. (laughs) It might be exactly the way that you want it because they're not very careful. And there's some folks that are so careful and so particular and so focused on how it turns out that they never do get around to doing it. Diligence involves the aspect of enthusiasm that recognizes that this is a job that's urgent and needs to be taken care of. It need not be put off. But as I do it, I need to recognize that I need to care about the outcome and how ultimately it, you see, is accomplished. And so Paul then says, be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. What I need to be diligent about? I need to be diligent about being pleasing to God. The objective is to not be ashamed to present myself to God and Him to be pleased with the presentation. The word present here, peristemi, means to stand before or exhibit for the purpose of inspection. So it's 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 something that's placed before another individual so that it can be inspected or looked at. And thereby an individual can make a judgment as to whether or not it's okay or it's not okay. It's a word to describe, used to describe the presenting of an offering in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language or the presenting of a sacrifice before God. In fact, Paul uses this passage in Romans chapter 12 when he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices before God. Those who have a Jewish heritage would understand exactly what Paul was talking about. That this particular sacrifice had to be of a certain type and blemish without blemish it had to be something that God would be pleased with you don't dare take something and present it before God if it's not what God actually wants so to present your bodies before God as a living sacrifice is to understand what God wants us to do with our bodies and how we are to react to the physical things of our life and the sacrifice that we ought to make with even with our physical bodies before God and that's the that's the concept involved here that we present ourselves to God with the view toward being approved before Him. And the word approved here is the word dokimos, which means to be accepted after a testing. It necessarily implies that something is going to be said, is going to be approved, or it's going to be presented with a stamp of approval after it's been put through a test. A word that originally used the testing of metals uh, so that they were found to be true. In fact, the noun form of this, if I'm if I'm correct in what I understand, was that uh, had to do with the aspect of coins. That uh, unlike our coins, the coins of the New Testament and, uh, and previous times were actually measured by weight, so that a particular shekel was a certain weight. And if you had a shekel of gold, you see, it was valuable because it was so much gold and it weighed so much. And sometimes unscrupulous individuals would get those shekels and sort of shave a little bit of it off. Just a little bit of every coin. After a while, you see, you can make you a free coin. But the idea was, that you, do you circulate coins that are not true weight? And the people that refused to fudge on that, the people that refused in any way, you see, to deal in coins that were uh, false weighted, were called dokimas. They were the individuals you see who were the approved dealers. You see, 
It's sort of like the good housekeeping seal of approval from years past, or the idea that this is a this is a business you can deal with because you know they're going to deal with you honestly. And that's what the word approved here involves. That God would put us to the test and we would would be able to be approved before God because there are some dangers involved here, particularly in the aspect of being someone who teaches the Word of God, someone who's involved in the task that Timothy was involved in. Those who teach sometimes can be tempted to please men rather than God. They can lose their focus on ultimately who they are accountable to and they could begin to teach those things that men want to hear or teach things for the praise of men to be for the accolades of men to say the words that are not necessarily what God would want them to say simply so other individuals would be approved so that boils it down you see to where we have to understand the basic temptation that's before individuals and no doubt Timothy faced as well What does that look like? What does it look like for someone who teaches the Word of God to be approved before God? What does it involve? Well, I believe Paul explains that to some some extent in in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I don't have that passage up here. I thought I did, but I'll read it together. 1 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul, speaking as an apostle, says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. You see the, you see the concept there. Paul says, We're approved by God and God has tested. Tested what? He's tested our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as an apostle of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. And as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would be a walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul gives a sort of a synopsis of what it meant for an apostle to be approved before God and all the things that were involved in that. They didn't do it for money. They didn't do it to be pleased of men. They were willing to suffer for the very cause of Christ. And when it came down to preaching, they would impart only the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. So devoted to that that they not only gave people the words that they said, but they gave people their own lives in the work. Now, what then Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is precisely what he wants Timothy to be, and that is a worker who does not need to be ashamed. A workman who has no cause for shame in his work. And the shame here, you see, is not simply before men, but rather before God. It is God who must be pleased. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4, Paul says, No no one engages in warfare and tangles himself with the affairs of this life. He may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And several times in this letter to Timothy, he makes it clear to him, and sometimes the analogy of other occupations to his job, that the focus of this is to please God, that God's the one who's put you to this task. And so we as well have to incorporate this principle into our own lives. We don't always obey God. And our redemption is not based upon perfect obedience. But our approval before God demands that we be diligent to obey Him in all things. And ultimately that the principle of our life is that we would please Him. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. So God works in us for this very purpose. He works in us the ability to be pleasing to Him. Isn't that fascinating? That God not only tells us, I want you to please me, but then He provides the ability and the opportunity and the power by which that takes place. In Hebrews chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, the writer of Hebrews says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. He prays that they would always be pleasing to God and then says, this is what God's doing within you, is making you the kind of person that He wants. So the purpose of God transcends anything that we desire and ultimately every other aspiration. And what God presents to us through His Spirit is the opportunity to be pleasing to Him and the power to make that happen. But then Paul says, this workman that does not need to be shamed rightly divides the word of truth. The phrase modifies the previous ones. And that this phrase defines how Timothy could be an unashamed worker who pleased God. He must rightly divide the word. What does that mean? Again, I'll suggest to you that the familiar translation may be misleading. The Greek word translated as rightly dividing in the King James Version and other versions as the New King James is orthodomeo, which literally means to make a straight cut. Or it means you see in this aspect here uh, as a carpenter or stonemason would to make sure that you are uh, following the line of the cut. To be accurate. It described the work of an engineer as he would build a road or build a building to make sure that everything was straight and plumb before him. So the word dividing here may not give us the best understanding, the idea that you divide the word up. Metaphorically, the word meant to proceed on a straight path without deviating from one, from one side to another. And ultimately, the terminology came to be equivalent to the aspect of doing what is right, understanding there's an objective standard, and then following that standard. Other translations bear this out. ESV says, rightly handling the word of truth. Holman's translation says, correctly teaching the word of truth. And the New American Standard Bible says, accurately handling the word of truth. And I think that's the best understanding. In years past, I've heard gospel preachers focus on the King James wording and teach that Paul was really instructing Timothy to be able to discern between the Old Testament and the New Testament to rightly divide the Word of God. Is to, that we have to know where to make those divisions and see what applies to us and what doesn't apply to us. And I'm not suggesting that's not an important part of Bible interpretation. Certainly it is. We have to be able to accurately discern the difference between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. But what we recognize is that this is not really the best understanding of this particular passage in the aspect of dividing. Paul's not telling Timothy to divide the word up. He's telling Timothy to make sure you handle it correctly and accurately when you look at the word. Paul is instructing Timothy then to be precise and to hold a straight course. To not deviate from one side to the other from the meaning of the text. Peter warned against those who would rest the scriptures or twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. It wouldn't be that they would throw the Scriptures out. They would simply take those words and make them, twist them to where they made them say what they wanted them to say. They interpret the Scriptures in such a way to establish, you see, what they believe to be right, or to support an established position. 
remember uh, hearing the story of fella, uh, about a fellow who was driving through the country and he saw uh, an old country boy, you see, uh, with targets set up in his yard. And on every target, he was shooting the gun, on every target that was there, there were holes in the bullseye. No place else, just holes right in the bullseye. And he thought, wow, that's pretty good. I'm stopped to see how this guy does that. So he stopped and asked the guy. He said, you must really be a good marksman. He said, well, yeah, I can shoot pretty good. He says, there's, there's a real secret to that. He says, I just shoot first and then paint the circle around it. <laughs> he says, that way, it's easier that way. And that's the way some people interpret the that's the way some people interpret the Bible. They come up with their positions and they go in there and paint the circle around it as far as looking at the scriptures that they think the text proves what they say. And that proof testing you see approach to scriptures, you see, uh, is not what God wants. Uh, it's not what God ultimately is telling Timothy to be involved in here. This necessarily implies some things to us, and as we close here, let me make a couple observations. How do I rightly divide the word of truth? And this is not comprehensive, but some things I think that apply here. Well, to say that I need to rightly divide or accurately handle the word of truth implies that I cannot be approved before God without knowing what the truth is. Somehow, the idea that my relationship to God is based upon intuition or feelings or emotions, you see, is taken over in religion, or at least become very prominent, and therefore the aspect that there is an objective standard in of truth in my relationship to God has gone by the wayside. And although the word study, as we, as we mentioned before, is not an accurate rendering of the text here, certainly the idea of meditating on the Word of God is exactly what's involved. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 15, Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine and continue in them. So the idea here you see is that we have to be individuals that are aware of what God says and spend time in the text of the Scriptures. Another element of this is I cannot bring my presuppositions into the text. If I'm going to rightly divide the Word of God, then I have to approach it with the aspect of an open heart to what God is actually saying. We've all been taught things, we've all learned things that may or may not be true. But if I read the Scriptures and attempt to support my already held views, I may very well, you see, distort the true meaning of Scripture and fail to come to understand what God is saying. In fact, it might be that I come away with the very opposite of what the Scriptures actually teach. The Calvinist does this often as an interpretation of passages. Passages that clearly teach personal free will and responsibility. He approaches it from the standpoint that can't possibly be true and therefore gives it another meaning. And fails, you see, to accurately handle the truth. And we might very well be able to see how the Calvinist does that and not see how we do it as well. We are prone to that as well. Explaining away those things that seem to contradict our perceived position. Another is that we must interpret the text in the context. If I'm going to look at what God actually says, I need to consider the context. And the word context literally means with text. It means that here's words that cannot be isolated by themselves and understood properly. I have to look at them in relationship to the words that are around them, to the text that's around them. So that I must know what the author was intending or try to know what the author was intending to say to the original audience to which it was presented. Look at verses or chapters that surround the verse to see what the subject was, what the author's point was, and other passages. Who's being addressed? How would the original audience have interpreted this particular words as they heard them for the first time? What do the actual original words mean in the original language? All of that is a part, you see, of rightly dividing or properly accurately interpreting the Scriptures. 
someone said that a good rule is let Scripture interpret Scripture. And I think that's exactly right. Look at what the Bible says in other places. And so read everything that God says about a subject or everywhere the passage of, there's a passage of Scripture that deals with a subject. And interpret the passage accurately as you can in each one. Allow the clear passage to make sense of those passages that are not so clear so that what God has said before may very well be the key to understanding what He's saying now. Certainly, we recognize that's how the New Testament disciples came to understand the truth. By interpreting Old Testament passages that may not have been real clear with clear apostolic interpretation of those passages within the first century. And they came to recognize what the truth was. But Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in a passage that we're familiar with and I guess I don't have that one up here. That's what we looked at before. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God as prophet for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now what Paul's saying is that every scripture, he's talking about Old Testament scripture there to Timothy, but he's saying all scripture as a whole is God's words. So you can't just throw one out and discount one. I have to recognize that they all ultimately stand equally before myself and before God. That doesn't mean they're all equally applicable to me, but I cannot approach God's word in a piecemeal fashion saying that I like this, I don't like this, and take only what pleases me or believe that I can come to a a correct doctrinal position on a particular subject by looking at a single passage of Scripture and erecting a doctrine around it. I must approach it with a desire to cut a straight course with the word that God has given me and not deviate from side to side. And then lastly, I have to read it and learn with a view towards instruction and correction. It's important to know the Word of God and to be accurate in what we ultimately understand about God's Word. But the purpose of God's Word is to transform us and to motivate us to do the things that are right, to make us so that we are pleasing before Him, approved in His sight. So Paul says to Timothy, you must accurately handle the Word of God so that you can make corrections in your life and be approved before Him. And so that's what 2 Timothy 3 tells us. That the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So that he is completely equipped to do everything that God has given him to do. He doesn't end up at the end of the day doing it all wrong because he didn't take into account everything that God said. I'm absolutely certain that my boss told me to put those levers in the right position and make the numbers come out. I just didn't listen. And so when it came down to the end of the day, though I had done everything else right, it meant nothing. I was unapproved to what I had done. You see, Scripture is all I need. But I need it all. And that's an important perspective. I must be thoroughly equipped to do the work of God. That's why assemblies like this are so important. Not only for the purpose of worshiping God, but so that we can encourage one another and persuade one another and convict one another to love and good works that we might be the kind of people that God would want us to be. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. You see, and that's what God does. He corrects us. He doesn't destroy us. He doesn't set us aside. He doesn't snuff out the, the, the smoking flax. He's an individual who wants us to be what, he want, what we ought to be and what's best for us. And therefore, He speaks His Word. And my responsibility is to rightly divide it. Timothy had a serious task for him. 
as he went out to preach the gospel. And as Paul had instructed him on several times, he was going to suffer as a result of that. But you and I have a serious task as well. We go about to teach the word of God. Our eternal salvation is dependent on whether or not we know what God has, re- has revealed in his word. And whether or not we have a view towards actually putting it to practice in our life. Whether or not we will rightly divide and accurately handle the word of God. But it's not just us. It's our children and our grandchildren. And people that will even live beyond us. Whether or not we handle the word of truth may very well set the course of their eternal destiny if we don't take task, the, important, the importance of handling the Word of God accurately. Do you know what God said? Do you know the truth? Maybe we can help you learn what God wants you to do in your own life. Maybe we can sit down and look at the Bible, the passages together and with the principles that we've discussed even tonight, this, this morning, we could talk about what God wants all of us to do and study the Bible together. It's a profitable work, a profitable endeavor, certainly. And if you need to know what God wants you to do in your life and you're of a mind to study it for the purpose of coming to know and be pleasing and prove before God, then we'd like to help you do that. Maybe you've learned the truth, but you've not responded to it. Maybe you know what God says, but you haven't acted upon it yet. Understand that part of handling the right of tr- the word of truth is putting it into practice in our own lives. And you cannot be approved before God unless you obey God. Maybe we can help you do that as well. Let's stand and sing.